0: Welcome to the Service Management Leadership Podcast with Jeffrey Tiefertiller.
1: Welcome back to another Service Management Leadership Podcast. have a great guest for you today. Welcome, Philip DeYoung, to the podcast. Philip, it's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Philip brings a wealth of experience, and so his background is different than some of our other guests. So I enjoy these conversations just as we look at some of the same things through a different perspective. So we'll start with a nice, easy one, Bill. How'd you, get, how'd you get into the world of service management?
0: Like a lot of things in life, quite by accident. Um, it, it Basically, it found me. Um, for the first part of my career, I was a software developer, right? See requirement, write code. See requirement, write code. That was, that was my life. And uh, in, I, in the organization I was with at the time, they, I said, I mean, I'd like to do something different. And they said, well, we need somebody to lead this small little team to take these tickets from the service desk. I said, great. Sounds like great. Hey, I get to lead a team for the first time, right? Well, I did that for a couple of weeks and the tickets just kept coming. They kept coming. We didn't know how to do them. We, We were just inundated. The service desk basically escalated everything to us. And I went, I was very frustrated. I went to my boss's office and I said, hey, this isn't going to work. <laughs> said, this, is, this, is, this is this is unwieldy. We're not going to be successful. And I got, it was one of those watershed career moments you never forget, right? When somebody has that, says something you never forget. He let me straighten out. He said, Philip, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> he said, go figure out what other companies are doing. Go figure out how other people are solving these types of problems. So I was a little bit, you know, sort of taken aback by that. So I went and sat down, brought up Google. And this thing came across my screen, said ITIL. <laughs> and so I said, hmm, ITIL V4 foundation certification. Maybe that might have some answers. So I went and did my, my certification. I learned all of these concepts and, and definitions and you know, which came with foundation certification. And then one day it hit me, the, the, the concept that I think really changed everything, problem management, right? And that was the, what we were doing wrong and and so you know but we still it, it was it's not it was going to change overnight and so you know how do you how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time right start first things first so i did something really really small but really significant um i told you that service desk they were not even not in it they were not they did not there was no such thing as knowledge management uh their escalation rates were through the roof Um, Our customers were frustrated with the service desk. And so, but I just wanted to start small. So I I created four or five problem tickets. And I went to the service desk and I said, hey, do me a favor, we're gonna gonna fix this together. And so when you get a ticket that has this, this issue, go in this field, go put this number. And if you get this issue in this field, put this number. And what I was giving them was problem ticket numbers. And it was fun. And the fact that they knew they were having an impact on potentially giving us metrics to get things fixed they were now engaged. They were now less frustrated. Right. And what's funny about that is like the problem tickets numbers took on a life of their own. You know, you could reference the, the ticket numbers like they were, you know, numbers in a hymnal. Hey, number 768 just happened again. <laughs> right. Hey, 429. you got another one of those. Right. Well, the, what happened is we got the metrics, went to the engineering development teams and said, hey, guys this is what's happening this is your pro- this is how your product is, is behaving in the in the in the in the workplace and they're like oh we probably need to fix those so so in so going forward what was then became effectively a tier 2 team we stopped working most incidents and we focused solely on problem it made the it made things more stable it it, it engaged the service desk and after about a year of doing this, they said, Hey, Philip, hey, uh, you're working with a service desk. Why don't you just take on the service desk? I'm like, fantastic. And so from there, the career grew um, and done a whole bunch of things since then. But that's, that, I'll never forget that how the, my service management journey started. It was with a conversation in an office said,
1: Hey, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes that's what we need to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would say there's a lot of companies still doing it wrong, quote unquote. It because it's bureaucratic, it's you know they don't see it as a, a value. You know, like when you your L two teams transitioned to problem management, now they became a value because the L two tickets were solved by the service desk, which is a cheaper and provides better service customer experience. That's right. That's right. the The, the number one priority of a, of a
0: of a tier two team is to be the is to be the their number one strategy should be to make the tier one team successful. Yeah, And that's a function of problem management. That's a function of knowledge management, specific, especially, right? Because if you're on the other end of that as a customer, how often do you want to hear, sorry, I need to escalate this ticket. Of course you don't want to. You want the person you're talking to or on chat or or however to actually resolve the issue for you. It also works with other types of tier one teams, like a NOC, like an IT operations team, right? How often do you want a NOC? A talk rate that says, "Oh, see red light, make phone call," right? That extends the life. That extends the life cycle of the incident. You want to enable that tier one team to resolve it on the first event.
1: Oh yeah, and it's one of those things that knowledge. All right, so you and I are of this of a certain age, where people our age call the service desk uh, more than the younger folk. And the younger people like looking things up. So I think knowledge management is going to become more and more of a priority, where it should, within organizations, because the younger, the, the people that grew up Googling their answers, that's, gonna, that's most of your workforce now, and that percentage is even going to grow. That's exactly right. And, and you have to keep
0: you know, in, I would call that tier zero resolution, right? right. Because it's touchless. But you have to stay on top of that to know exactly what they're looking for and get those metrics back. So you can have that feedback loop to, to even give better knowledge or, or tier, what I call tier zero support, right? Um, you have to, uh, you know, you want to watch which articles are being used the most, uh, which article, you know, the little thumbs up, thumbs down metric, right? And says, hey, this didn't help me. Well, we need to go look at that. Why didn't it help them?
1: Oh yeah, and you know, the thing that gets me is a five-year-old article is probably zero value because you think, what what else changed in our environment in the last five years? Everything. So, you know, every time. So I'm I'm like the knowledge management, I'm like the czar of that because I'm like every time you push in new functionality, you make a change, you need to go update that that knowledge article. The one that gets me the most, Philip, and I will tell you this soapbox, and I won't get into it, is when we push defects live without creating knowledge. So then, because it's not a showstopper, we can't slow down for it, got it. But at least document it somewhere because you know it's gonna, it's gonna rear its head sooner or later, whatever that defect is, and the service desk won't have a clue what's going on or the knowledge base or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the thing is that you can't predict the future, right? right. You, can't, you can't predict what events or, or defects are going to occur. So you have to have that rapid feedback cycle in place so you can respond quickly with the appropriate knowledge quickly, right? Um, you know, a lot of times when I deal with, um, you know, service transition or, or operational readiness, you know, they say, you know, you ask, well, okay, we need some sort of, at least some initial set of knowledge. Well, what do, you, what do you normally get from developers or engineers? You get architectural diagrams. Right. Well, that's great, but that's not an operational thing. That's probably good background info. So you have to have to say, okay, well, what are the most common things that could occur? Or what are those things, what are those aspects of that service that if it went down, we need to know about first? What are the first things we need to try, All right? Um, and get at least get those as a base and then have that rapid feedback mechanism so that if something happens, you can't predict, you can get it the
1: next time at tier one or even tier zero. Right. We just got to get in front of it. Somehow we have to get in front of it. So many organizations are struggling with, how do I incorporate different, uh, different frameworks? And I'm going to pick on two, but agile service management. And so it's, how do I incorporate my service management into agile or vice versa? Because with our agile, we have product teams, other frameworks do too. So you can take it any direction you want. Sure. And it's, how do we, you know, how do we, these product teams are, are transitioning into a live environment? You mentioned that. And so how do, we, how do we merge those frameworks in a way that's seamless? If we have the, the consumer in mind and whether it's, they don't care DevOps or any of that, they don't care. They just want it to be seamless. My stuff, my functionality goes in and I have good support. How would you recommend people do that?
0: Think about when you're, whether it's agile waterfall. it's still about providing a capability and service, right? So I love going to the car metaphor what is the service of a car? It's to get from point A to point B, right? But there are certain aspects about that car that are operational in nature, right? You have to be able to have a speedometer to know how fast you're going, aka monitoring. You have to have a gas gauge to tell you when you need to put gas in it. You need to know there are certain things around uh, that are what I call timed events, like when do you rotate the tires? When do you change the oil? Or when do you when do you patch a server? When do you change security certificates, right? These are all the operational aspects of the service. So what you want to do is you, when you're working with an operational team, working with a product team or development team, I call it have the conversation. It's simply have the conversation, right? I've seen operational readiness checklists that are 50 pages long that are just a bunch of checklists, and of course, they don't get done, Right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happens is, is a lot of times to come with, you are going to have the conversation that happens at the very end, right? Just before the change ticket goes in. Hey, ops, what do you need? Yeah. Well, okay. So I call it have the conversation and have the conversation early. And here's what I mean by the have the conversation. Don't have the 50 page checklist. Just ask four questions. Who, how, when, and why? Keep it simple. Who? The who is who are the first, what I call the first touch operational teams, right? Who's the, who's the point of the spear that'll have to operate this service? Typically, it's a service desk or it's a knock right? Those are your, that's your first touch. Okay, now that we know, are they aware? What do they need? What are those, what are those you know, the, the, what are the most important aspects of this service, right? And then the how. That's if you identify the who, now you get the how, and that's all what we just talked about about knowledge management, right? give them as much as they need upfront, front and have that feedback cycle that we just talked about. When, just like when you need to change the oil in your car, what are those operational aspects that have a timing aspect to them, right? How do I run and operate? When do I need to reboot service? When do I need to change out security certificates? When do I need to do the patching? You know, all those things of how do I make sure my car keeps running, right? To, to extend the metaphor. And the other one is why? Why would those teams react the way they do when an event occurs? Here's an example: If the engine light comes on the car, or I, or my car stops working on the you know stop working, have to pull over. That's probably a P1 incident for my car, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have to be ready to handle that, right? I have to know what to drive it to the to the garage. I have to know whether or not, you know, do I can I call AAA or can do I have a warranty on it, right? I have to know that from an operation standpoint, or Is it a P3 like my gas gauge just says I need to get gas and there's a certain time frame. I got a little bit bit of time, right? Do your tier tier one operators know the whys of what they do? In other words, do they understand the aspects of the service? Have that conversation early. And if you're in an agile environment, have the conversation per iteration, right? Because each iteration is about the potential changes to the service. The changes to the service can all have impacts to those four questions.
1: So I'm gonna push in on two things. First okay. of all, I, I liked your 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 thought process. And I wanna, this is a statement, not a question, but feel free to chime in. If people that transitioned workloads to an outsourcer just followed that, they would be far further ahead. Most that I know of, they're like, here's a checklist with server login names, oh you certificates, you know, twice a year so on and so forth without understanding like some of your how and what could be here are the change windows we've agreed to with the business. Here's when we can do those certificates. So it's non-disruptive. You know, there's a lot of things that are intuitive to the people on the front line, but the, whoever accepts it, it's harder. And it gets back to the V 3 service design package because what you described was, I think of the four warranty processes of is it security? is it secure enough, continuous enough, enough capacity, enough availability? And your question, your uh, your four parameters kind of address those. Does that seem fair? It is fair. It is fair. And the other thing
0: I would say around that when, you, when it comes to those type of service transitions um, discussions that you have, if you're in an agile environment, you also need to if you need to, I would call it fail fast, right? Yes fail fast and have that rollback plan be ready to go with that i'll give i'll give you a story i heard i'm going to quote uh, gene kim the author of Phoenix project i heard speaking speak one time and he told a story that really stuck with me he was he was uh um visiting a, an, an operations or center or knock you know all the big screens up there and they were touring him around then all of a sudden the room got really quiet and everybody was just staring at the screens and he's like what's going on did we just have a p1 event the guy touring him said no, we just had a change and we're making sure that it worked. So is, that's the level of maturity that you have to have, especially in an agile environment where you are making changes fast. You need to understand, you need to be able to see the changes in operations fast. You know, Don't ever rely on your end users to be your alarm system. Ever, exactly.
1: right? Exactly.
0: If, you're, if your end users are your alarm, or is your alarm system or your monitoring system, you fail. You can't do, and you certainly can't do that if you're trying to, you know, move fast. You know, typically when we talk agile, we're talking about changing, getting getting more capability fast and faster
1: and faster, right? Well, you got to do it in the operation side too. And I want to push in a, again, if I may. So I think a lot of people make change with change management, change enablement with agile way too complicated. You know, when those sprints are coming, it's not hard to have if that product team has a localized changes have set up a cab just for that product team, you know, so they could be as fast as one. If not, you know, you can work it in, you know, they're two or three weeks sprints and people have issues with this. And I struggle, I struggle understanding that. Do you see that very often? I do. And here's how I
0: think we solve that problem. And I think it's actually built into ITIL without ITIL knowing that it was really right. gradual that standard changes the yes. concept of a standard change right because the definition of standard change is very low risk right and a repeatable process those are the two key elements mm-hmm. i would say they're important to standard, mm-hmm. right so in an agile environment devops environment cicd whatever you want to call it if you're rapidly making changes do you have the pipeline right that gives you that lever you know that safety net so that it could be standard changes and then heck you know go go another step further and actually automate the standard changes along with the cicd pipeline right yes and now you've got now you do have that marriage of
1: it you've got a really
0: good marriage there between itsm and, and and agile
1: i've set that up a few times where it goes through automated testing and jira kicks off a standard change and uh in the tool and then it deploys through Jenkins or Octopus or something like that. But one of the things, so whenever you talk about that whole stuff, that always gets me all fired up. And I'll tell you why. Because we make, like I said earlier, we make it difficult. And I think back to when server servers had images on disks, right? Remember those old days. Mm-hmm. And you could deploy that disk a million times. Um, it doesn't matter. And you were confident on that image that it wasn't going to have any issue but if you were going to change that image then it probably needed a change because it could really mess a lot of stuff up does that seem reasonable that is. that's all that's all that code is in cicd mm-hmm. if it's if you're changing or establishing that image or that to be deployed that code be thorough but once you're happy with it deploy it a million times with the standard change does that That's seem cool. fair? It is. I would, I, I, I would agree with that. I would
0: say that, that, you know, if you've got a repeatable process through automation, link that to your standard change. If you change the process or change that pipeline, now let's get back into cab and, and normal, right? And, let's, and let's, let's be a little bit more thorough with it.
1: Let's test it. Let's make sure. Because if we're going to deploy it a million times, we don't want a million incident tickets, right? That's exactly right. And so let's move, I'm going to push in further with this, if I may, go to another topic that's real tangential. What I've seen a lot is Agile and DevOps and those type of frameworks, there's a lot, right, are being used for deployment for what we in the ITSM world would think of as service transition. And then they kick it over the fence to somebody else that's doing operations. It could be in-house, it could be outsourced. I see that a lot. Maybe you do it as well. I see that, that gap is that kicking over the fence as a real headache for many organizations. I, I agree. I agree. And I'm, and I'm going to go a step further on the,
0: on the whole tier two theme, right? I believe that the tier a uh, good tier two organization and empowered tier two organization can have the most influence in a sport organization. I believe tier two will, is, is, can help close that gap And so you don't have that what you throw it over the fence model. Right. They can be that the face of operations and the face of dev at the same time.
1: Right. And so this really gets tricky when we think of major incidents, P1s. How do we handle those? All right, product team, you need to get in here because we have something to fix. Operation teams, they're, they're bailing water as fast out of the rowboat as they can. And they're, they're both trying to figure out how do we do this better? How would you recommend they do that better? Yeah, so
0: uh, I, I love talking about P1s, believe it or not. <laughs> that sounds weird, right? Because they're war, they've become war stories, right? Mm-hmm. And so through the, the, the P1s I've been through, I've noticed a two, three, di- I would call it three different things on what you need to have in place so that you can fail fast, so that you can reduce your P1s, so that you can, you can increase your uptime. The first thing you got to have is a great incident manager, right? Invest in your incident manager and a great incident manager. Isn't just about being the air traffic controller on that P1 bridge, right? The incident manager is also sitting over there taking notes about what ha- is happening that we could improve upon. So for example, like I've said before, if the incident came up be- you know, because we ha- heard about it from our customers, You better believe that incident manager We've been taking a note that says, I got a task to go and get somebody, either I'm gonna go do it or get somebody to go create the monitor so that we don't have this next time, right? The other thing a great incident manager does is they look for the efficiencies, okay? Mm -hmm. So the number, when the P1 bridge starts up, what is the one thing that takes the longest thing to do that extends the life cycle of the incident? It's getting people on the phone, getting the engineers, the developers on the phone, right? He's looking for the the good incident manager should be looking for that opportunity that that says hey how can how can i enable the people who first saw this your tier 1 team to fix it faster do i do they need to pull a server out of the load balancer and reboot it do they need to cycle you know web services what do they need to do right so they can actually either greatly shorten the the a p1 or or eliminate the the customer impact altogether the other thing that goes to the next thing is make sure you've got an enabled tier one team don't have don't have the theme in your tier one team that is see red light make phone call right <laughs> that is that is very very expensive way to run an organization and that's a very easy way to extend the life the 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 lifetime of a people right and this goes back to that same thing we talked about get that feedback loop going of knowledge and key, and you know hire great talent at your tier one and enable them and trust them. And, and that's hard. That's really hard for, for organizations to do. But if you're serious about, about you know, lowering your, your P1s that you need to consider. And of course, the, you know, the third thing is problem management, right? Have a great problem manager. Invest in problem management. Um, and, I, and I would go for, so far to say this. If an organization is looking to increase its uptime and you want to consider, you know, in maturing your problem management, put financial metrics on it right? And that could be soft costs or hard costs. You, you hard costs are things like you might have to pay penalties and SLA violations, right? Mm-hmm. You can you get that money. A, a good problem manager can probably pay for themselves in less than a year, in weeks, not if, you know, not years, right? right? And then and look for the soft costs, right? Who is having to resolve the incidents and how many of them are we doing? It's, you, know, it's, you can look at it from a width standpoint of how many times is this issue hitting our service desk? right or look at it from a depth standpoint so you know from our p1s how 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 much how much money is this is this p1 outage costing us invest in that
1: problem manager and you'll reduce your your uh your p1s so two things first of all one thing i don't see often enough and i'm a huge believer of big soapbox for me is quantifying the cost of an outage we have to do better the most recent studies I saw, mid-sized company, large company was nine thousand dollars a minute. I don't. I think P ones are way more expensive. Um, most companies, you know, like if, if you're if you're a bank and your peop- and your customers cannot use your app to to you know check their balance or you know get money or change money. It's going to cost you. You know, your Bank of America. It's way more than nine nine thousand a minute. You know, yeah. could be ninety thousand a minute or more. You know, so quantifying the cost of an of uh, the outage. But the second thing, and and I want to push in on you, is the the tie between event management lowering P ones has to be set right. Correct. Yeah, and
0: and, and you tie the event management to to your, to your, what I would call the, you know, your service priority, right? I think one of the things that you have to do is you have to create a prioritization matrix. Prioritization matrix just says when this occurs, it's P1. This occurs, it's P2, right? And then there's no argument when you get on the bridge, right? And you, you want to know that ahead of time. Um, And you want, and here's the thing, you want to collaborate with your product partners, your business partners, even your customers to determine what that prioritization matrix looks like you want to look at it from a contractual standpoint. What are the contracts I have with my with my end users and my end customers, right? That goes to, and that goes to a service design discussion, right? If, if I'm, if I have just, you know, promised my customer five nines, do I have the high availability infrastructure to do it? Can I afford it, right? And then, so then you go, well, maybe five nines isn't, I can't afford five nines.
1: Maybe we need to go through, three nines on this because oh,
0: yeah. I, I'm not gonna invest that much
1: in my infrastructure. But I would take that a step further. I've been on this kick lately, and those that listen to it regularly probably chuckle, is I think that we measure the wrong things. You mentioned mm-hmm. five nines and three nines. An hour outage at Saturday night at midnight is different than Tuesday afternoon and for most organizations. Some organizations are 24 by seven, I get that. But it's the ability for us to understand it from the customer's point of view, because, you know, the P1, we should only consider what is a P1 from the impact to the business customer, right? I mean, it's not what we in IT think, not to be not to be uh, sarcastic, but it doesn't really matter what we think. It's what the consumers of our services, what they think.
0: Right. I, I yeah, 100% agree. It's, it's, again, I'll go back to the car metaphor, right? What's the demand of the customer and how do I fulfill that? Create that service and that experience for the customer, right? And then I go back and say, okay, well, how can I deliver on
1: that? And how can I deliver on it from an operational standpoint as well? And I, so everybody loves stories. And I tell this one all the time, probably too much. But I used to work with someone, I was on the trans service transition side and all that stuff. My peer over in the, the service operations side, he'd go through and take P1s and make them P3. So he'd make, he would hit all of his SLAs. And my eyes get big, right, because I'm like, how long do you think it's going to take the business people to figure this out? You know, that now instead of it being hours, it's days. And they don't, you know, it's that it's that lack of seeing it through that customer lens and seeing like what's important to them. How do we prioritize? What do we do? That's right. And again, I'll go back to the prioritization matrix. Right. You
0: have to have that agreement up front. You know, it it could come contractual with your customers, depending on, depending on your business. Right. And then the, that contract has to work its way back into availability and just into infrastructure and, and, and things like that. And you, and you, if, if you're fine, if you're in an organization where you're finding yourself with being subjective around prioritization, it sounds like, you know, and then your story, that's exactly what it was, is he was staring it away and being subjective. Then you are pro- then you set yourself up for fail- for failures like that. You're setting yourself up for, arguments you don't want to have. Right. And so that's why you need to write things down. I've heard it said in the past, you know, if, it, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. Right. Get that prioritization matrix written down and keep it and, and make it dynamic, make it put it on a put it on a wiki, put it on someplace where everybody can see it, have reviews on it, edit, you know, make it part of your incident management process to go back and review it. You know, did we really Do we really want to do that? You know, and and make sure you're not doing it in a vacuum. Make sure you're bringing your business partners, your product partners, potentially
1: even your customers, along with you on that journey of of your prioritization matrix. So I'm about taking us on a left turn, and I'm warning you ahead of time. All right, I see all of where you were talking about, and I agree. So we're we're taking a left. We're taking that as foundational, and taking a left turn. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause it the theory that all of that P1, all of that communication, all of that should be the grounds for your DR and your business continuity programs, because what's a P1 type of incident should have some kind of translation into your disaster recovery and your business continuity.
0: You're absolutely right. Right. If it's important enough for me to declare P1, if it's important enough for me to, you know, uh, you know, alert my customers, alert my, my stakeholders, if it's important enough to pull in bridges, then it's important enough for me to invest in DR. It's important enough to, for me to have, you know, for to understand the, how important it is in business community perspective. And again, and, and then you can also go the other way with it, right, what are those things that are not important as important, and therefore now I know where to focus my, my investments from a DR
1: perspective. Yep. And so to me, I've seen this up, up close. That's why I, I, I steered you there, is I've seen places that have DR rated high and it's a P3 or vice versa. And I'm like, there has to be alignment and that should be alignment with your changes as well because the, the riskiness of your change should be tied to whether it could create a P1 incident. And that should that change should affect the timing of when we do it. And I mean, all this is strung together like a chain. You know the
0: piece that the, the the real the real key piece into all this discussion is your CMDB. Yes. Right. All your CMDB. That is your database that determines down to the CI level what's important and what isn't. So I, you know, when it comes to this. I would tie, you know, your incidents, your your uh, your DR and your prioritization, your changes, tie it back to your CMDB. And the way you do it is you start at the start at the very very top. Okay. Start with your high level services. So if you were to build a dashboard for your organization, what are your top five to 20 things that that services that your organization provides, right? Create that dashboard, red light, green light, right? What's your customer experience, right? And then you go from there. And now you know that for these particular services, these are P1 services. These are P2 services. Or you can drill down a little further and say for these services, these aspects of them are P1s. These are P2s, right? And then you and you have when you start at that highest level, create the connections down to your CIs. Now, you know where you can focus your DRs your, and, and, and those types of things. You, you have to, you know, again, I mean, talked about investment into your problem manager and your incident manager, Inve- investment into a good
1: configuration manager can also help you solve that as well. I would say that's even more, more important because it, and I would say that because a few weeks ago, I put a poll out on LinkedIn and vast majority of people are under 75% accurate on their CMDB. And it makes me think, ask the question, those of us of a certain age, I would ask, hey, if your checkbook was 75% correct, how comfortable would you be? And your response would be, depends on what the other 25 is, right? And so that's the same thing on your CMDB. Even if you're 90%, what's the other 10 look like? And so, anyway. And some CMDBs, you know, they're not cheap.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, some seem to be, you know, you get into a tooling discussion, right? And this is what this becomes. You start, you start talking about tools. You know, have, you know, no tools before the rules, right? And, you know, full, the tool's still full. You, know, you hear all those things. I always think of the tools like, especially the, the really, big, you know, big ones, the you know, big monitoring tools, the big ITSM tools. Think of them like, I'm going to go back to the car metaphor again. Think of it as like as an F1 race car, a car that can go really, really fast, a high-performing tool, as, you, as it were. If you buy the race car, it's not going to go without a pit crew, without a crew chief, without a good driver, without, without the investment of the people around the tool. So any organization, when you're having a tools discussion, you can't just look at the bottom line of the cost of the tool. Look at what it costs to actually operate the tool. And if you want to go fast and you want that good tool, Make sure you've got the right people around it to make sure you're getting the value
1: out of it. CMDB and configuration managers are a great example. And pushing in on that, half of, roughly half of your attributes in your CMDB have to be manually kept up. Mm-hmm. Like what tier is this for our P1s or P2s? And those, the one thing I did want to bring up is those, that, those attributes, what they are. Get inherited down throughout the CI, so you can make every CI within a service have the same priority level.
0: You can, you can, but you have, You also. Have, you, you, I would also challenge that you have to look at it both ways, right? Yes. So let's say, let's say you have a, a that that trickle that what you call like the trickle down effect, right? Of and you got down to the CI level, and that's tied to a P one service, okay. But just because something's going wrong with that particular CI doesn't automatically mean you have a P1. So you have to make sure you're looking at it from both ends, right? I would call a monitor against that CI, you know, leading indicator, service, hype, CPU, whatever, right? right. But make sure you've got the lagging indicators on the back end, your, your synthetics, your, your, your dashboarding, to make sure you understand um, impact, right? And you can type in a, in, a, in a great operations environment, you can put those two things together. And come up with your p1 or,
1: or your priority because it's all about the customer i don't want to beat that horse too far but it's all about the customer's perspective and everything has a an opportunity cost and there's things are mutually exclusive you only have so many resources they're finite and if you do a you may not be able to do b and that's what you're getting at right if i treat what should be a p4 as a p1 it means i my resources can't address something that might be more important. That's right.
0: And again, I'm going to go back to the theme of of discover it fast. And you discover it fast by having an enabled tier one team, right? Yeah. And you then and, and it's I, you know, I've seen I've seen it in organizations where let's say, let's say you're monitoring some software, right? And let's say um you know you have unhandled exceptions in your software and the unhandled exception goes to the operations team in the form of an alert. And all of a sudden you've got tier one operators looking at a a.NET stack trace that is not going to help us right, right. you have to look at it's about the customer what is our customer impact and making sure that our tier one teams who are the tip of the spear closest to the problem understand that customer impact so you have to invest in those and in, in not just the monitor tools but invest in the people around the tool that can make sure that we are utilizing it correctly so that we can understand that impact a lot quicker
1: right and that's That's half the battle
0: right right. understanding it and communicating it yeah one of the things that one things i I see is if you if you're trying to resolve an incident and the first place you go is logs (laughs) right that's logging is a function of problem management logging is not a function of incident management i've always believed that right if you're looking at logs in the middle of an incident you missed something you missed you missed that customer experience monitor that you needed
1: Right, and in those customers, you know, you brought up earlier, and I, I hats off to you about the quality of your incident manager because that person becomes a trusted per, uh, human within your IT group for all of your business stakeholders. Something goes down, or down, they're on the phone before a bridge goes. They're like, "Hey, my computer smells a little bit." Well, was, what was it? What you had for lunch? You know, I mean, this person's like uh, a confidant, and they're the the one that everybody trusts way more than people realize. Well, you definitely and an incident
0: manager is a, should have the, their leader. They should have leadership capabilities, right? Um, they cannot be out. You know, I, I see. You can't be a passive incident manager. And by passive incident manager, I mean you're 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 doing you're recording things to make sure things get recorded correctly, right? You're you're making sure the incident tickets are, is done correctly. Now you need to be. They need to be that bulldog on that P1 bridge call. I'll give. I'll give you a great example. If you're having to pull together a P1 bridge call, you're having to pull in engineers and developers. And if you hear a develop, let's say you hear a developer going in and starting looking at going looking at lines of code logs, right? And the incident manager knows that a change occurred. He's going to stop them from doing that, or saying, "Okay, go do that somewhere else." But he's going to say, "Back out the change now. We'll worry about the lines of code later."
1: Right we don't, let's put that in at midnight when, when nobody's online, you know, like in our day and time that we live in, that's high technical, very high technical. We know when and who is online at any one given point. We know we, we have that ability. So we should be able to time our changes so that it has the least amount of potential impact. I mean, that's, I don't want to say that's simplistic, but a lot of companies, a lot of organizations don't, don't go that far. It's interesting you brought that up. The number
0: one thing I see in change management when it comes to change risk is when it comes to a risk assessment, mm-hmm. the, 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 the people that are creating the change, they are looking at their confidence of, of, change, of change, right? How confident am I that I did everything right? That's not what risk assessment is about. No. Risk assessment is predicting the unpredictable. What is the risk to the business? if something that we did not predict
1: happens. That's what true risk assessment and change should be about. Right, this thing goes south. And and I always hear, oh, it won't go south. Like, okay, bear with me, if it does, and something happens that you don't know about, if it goes south, what would happen? And those are the conversations you have to be able to get to because the whole thing is, how do we put high rates of change into production? And you mentioned standard change earlier, but there's, there's so much overlap, emergency change, P1, emergency change, you know, uh, problem management. It's so interrelated. So, very much quick, so. Oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, very much so. But it's related. And again, it goes back to your services, right? Yeah. If you want to be you want to be a mature, I believe if you want to be a mature service management organization. It's all about the services because the services are all about the customers. You know, start, at the, start with something simple. Create your services list, right? What is that list of thick things that your organization provides that you care about? Then go from there, right? Build the CMDB underneath that. Do your mapping. Now you do your problem management against the services. Your changes go against those services. It's all interrelated to the
1: services. I'm with you. And you mentioned something earlier that I agree with. I, I let it swim on because I'd come back to it you shouldn't really get have more than 20 services. Like, you know, you'll have a accounting finance, maybe an HR. If you're a bank, you have retail, I'm just picking an industry. You'd have retail, you'd have maybe the app, maybe you'd have loans, maybe you'd have deposit. And so it's easy to say, okay, what are we offering our customers? And then build downward. You know what I mean? Like we're, there are some of it that are primary and some of them are secondary like accounting, that your customers don't care about your accounting, but you still need to have them. So you start with, what do we what are we offering our customers? And then start building the technology downward. And then what are the back of house? And start building our technology downward. Does that seem reasonable? It does. And, it's, and, and getting that list of 20,
0: that's not an easy exercise. No. Because what's the temptation? The temptation is to put your product name in yeah. there. To put your platform name. No, that's not a service. It might, it, it may feel that way, but that's really what supports the, it's, think of service. It, the word I always like to use is capability. What are the capabilities that our organization is providing? Accounting, HR, right?
1: Then the platforms go underneath that. Exactly. But I always use the bank one because we all think about it, you know, and we think, okay, you mentioned dynamic the banking one's gonna change. In the next 20 years, the banking app's gonna go up in the website and they're gonna have fewer retail establishments. That's just my view. I mean, people now can take a picture. They can have a bank in another state, take a picture and have a deposit. You know, they, We can do so much transactionally differently now and it's only dividing, it's only becoming more so. And so those services today may not be your services tomorrow, right? I agree. Oh, absolutely. And so you're
0: always in so a service a service catalog, right, okay. as it were, you know, that's all you always want to review and adapt um, and making sure that you are always focused on the capability that you are giving your customers. If you, if you stick with that theme on your service catalog, can't go wrong.
1: <laughs> Philip, we thank you for joining us on the podcast as time's gone by quickly. Is there any parting words or guidance you'd like to offer at the end?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in, in the experience I've had is, it, you know, in, in various aspects of, of, of uh, you know, operational organization, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing keeps popping up. And that is, if you want to make an investment, if you don't, you know, you want to improve things, you know, do you invest in this tool, you invest in this team, I would say you always start with your tier two team. That's just, I'm very passionate about that, right? You, you, the tier two team can make your tier one team better because they are supporting with knowledge management, right? A good tier two team only does, never does things twice. Right. If, they get, if they get a ticket, they don't just resolve the ticket, but they ensure that tier one can do it the next time. They will make your tier one, a good tier two team will make your tier one team better. A tier good tier two team can protect your more expensive tier three team resources because what are typically your tier three resources? They're developers and engineers who are probably tasked with doing things like product development and, right. and and enhancing things for the organization. So a good tier two team is focused on problem management. And here's what I mean by that. They are, if not resolving the problem, they are queuing it up to tier three as best they can so it takes tier three less time. Go find that line of code that, that you think is causing the issue. Go do the RC. go do a good RCA on that so that tier three can, can resolve it in their next sprint, right? Um, never, ever, ever escalate an incident ticket to tier three. If you've, if you've escalated an incident ticket to tier three, you failed on a knowledge management perspective, you failed on a problem management perspective. And you just keep those simple rules in place. Invest in great resources at tier two who are passionate. I'm gonna age this a little bit. Um, the way I like to look at it is you remember the show MASH? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah,
0: remember radar? Oh yeah, yeah. I look at a tier good tier two team as a as a group of radars. They got the finger on the pulse. They know ever they know where things need to get fixed. They know that they are, they anticipate things right. They um, uh, they you know a good tier two is a, team, a a team of capable radars.
1: Invest there, and you will improve the whole of your organization. Corporal O'Reilly, if my memory serves. That's right if my memory serves, sometimes it, it, my gerbils spin faster than others. So, uh, it's great having you on Phil. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and, uh, audience reach out to him. If you have any questions on this, have a great, great day. Thank you. All right. Bye.